Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience <laughs> by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. That's G-I-S-T, Yes to Freedom, coming to you over www.blocktalkradio.com backslash Black History. I'm a genealogist stationed here in Kansas City, Missouri. My guest tonight is frequent contributor to the Gist of Freedom, Kimberly Simmons. She's going to talk to us about recent racist events occurring at Oberlin, College in Oberlin, Ohio. Kimberly is a direct descendant of abolitionist Oberlin graduate Lewis Sheridan Leary. Mr. Leary was part of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Good evening, Linda. Hello. And this in is this Preston? This is Preston. Is that Kimberly? Hi, this is this is Kimberly. Oh, okay, Kimberly. How are you doing tonight? Was just telling good. Our, How are you? I'm fine. I was just saying that uh we're here to talk about uh some recent events, disturbing events going on in Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio. And that you have a connection to that uh, college, and why don't you remind our listeners of what that connection is? Well, absolutely. I um, have a couple of different uh, connections, if you should, if I guess you would say. My, um, I am uh, a member of the Langston Quarles uh, family, which would make me a cousin and a direct descent of John Mercer Langston, Charles Langston. Uh, my cousin also is Langston Hughes. And I do believe that that is a very strong connection to the Oberlin legacy. Oh, very strong, very strong. And did you mention uh, Lewis Sheridan Leary? And I did not. Lewis Sheridan Leary was a cousin of the Langstons, but again, uh, Lewis Sheridan Leary... I will remind everyone, was one of the five African-Americans that was at Harper's Ferry with John Brown. Exactly. And uh, Oberlin was uh, a center of the abolitionist movement, the Underground Railroad. A number of rescues were performed there in terms of those freedom seekers who were helped along uh, the Underground Railroad, spent a little time there in Oberlin, Oberlin College as they were making their way to Canada. So the events uh, that are happening now are very disturbing. Can you tell our listeners, where do you want to start with that? How What's going on up there at Oberlin right now? Well, you know, y- yes, I agree wholeheartedly that is disturbing. Oberlin has been known. Uh, it's a liberal arts college, um, but Oberlin is, is very well known as being the home, uh, let's just call it the, the home of freedom, a center of freedom. Uh, John Brown's uh, father was a president of the college many years ago. Um, excuse me, not a president. He was one of the board members. John Brown spent a lot of time in Oberlin himself personally. Uh, you have the Oberlin-Wellington massacre. Excuse me, the Oberlin-Wellington uh Rescue. Yeah, there was a rescue. 
rescue that involved the uh, Langstons as well as the, the uh, Oberlin Anti-Slavery Society, and they rescued John Price. Um, Harper's Ferry, most of the uh, participants in, at Harper's that went to Harper's Ferry with John Brown um, passed through Oberlin. My ancestor, uh, Lewis Sheridan Leary, um, it's to for what's going on right now to be tied to that college is very disturbing. Uh, apparently, in the last uh, month or so, there has been a lot of uh, tension on campus, primarily with a lot of um, scare tactics, we'll call it, uh, rach racial um, innuendo. Uh, there was a sighting of someone who purported to be robed similar to what you would think a Ku Klux Klan member uh, would be wearing. Uh, there has been a lot of racial slurs found on campus, uh, scribbled on walls, notes left in bathrooms, um, scare tactics. And for it to be happening at Oberlin, it it's just especially as a, a descendant of a family that is so tied to that place and so tied to freedom, I find that a very disturbing trend. And I want to say, Preston, that I believe it's a trend that is playing itself out across the country, but for it to be happening in Oberlin is extremely upsetting. What do you think your family would be doing if they were here today or back in the day if something like this occurred. Oh, they'd be marching. Are you kidding me? I I can't even I you know, I have thought about this um since I was actually apprised of what was going on and I had still have a very active family. We've been activists since we I guess you would say arrived in this part of the country after uh, freedom came to um, all the family. Um, I say that as an Underground Railroad descendant. Um, some parts of the family were free, some weren't. But uh, once uh, the family was free, we never lost the thought of, of uh, making sure that those civil rights that we had had to acquire, um, fight for, We've been fighting ever since, and I can tell you without hesitation, the elders in my family would be appalled. They would be marching. I had a great-grandmother that was known. Um, she was quite a woman. Her name was Idella Watkins Small, and Idella was the granddaughter of two freedom seekers and, and knew them, would have been born to talk to them. And Idella carried that all her life. They say that I'm somewhat like her. Um, they, she um, hesitated not. And I'm talking about a woman that lived turn of the century through the uh, 20s, 30s. She died mid-40s. But she um, was a member of a group that started their own, um, was a, a pre-NAACP, uh, if you want to say, uh, organization set in Canada, and she was known uh, to start many of the civil rights organizations in a place called Windsor, which is across the river from Detroit, uh, started many of the uh, local um, uh, African-Canadian societies for women out of the churches. She was a very big activist. She never worked. She you, she was what you would call a little little old lady, but she carried a big mm -hmm. stick, and she had no problem with picking up the phone and calling the mayor, and asking for his audience. And he was known when Mrs. when Mrs. Small was on the phone to answer that telephone call. Yes. So uh, taking that to Oberlin, and this is uh, who who I am descended from, and who. Uh, I come from, they they would be appalled, appalled at what's going on. Do you have any family at, uh, living in that area or any family who are current students at Oberlin College? No, I, I do not. 
um, I did have family that lived in Oberlin, but no longer. Um, of course, John Mercer Langston and his brother, uh, Charles, both lived in Oberlin for a time. John Mercer's home actually is a National Historic Site. It's on the Oberlin Camp College campus. And um, so we're tied to Oberlin that way. There's no one that actually in the family that lives in that area now. I've, I have been invited to visit Oberlin, um, actually by the, the uh, owner of the John Mercer Langston home um, a couple of years, a couple of... Uh, Falls ago, one of my cousins, actually, who's a professor um, out of uh, college in uh, Virginia, no less, mm -hmm. actually went to Oberlin and uh, did a uh, talk for Oberlin, the Oberlin students on the Langston Quarles family. So, again, the family is very tied to that place. Um, we always will be because of who we are. And um, I just, you know, I find it, I find it so um, interesting that the history in Oberlin is so strong uh, toward uh, civil rights, human rights, freedom, and the students that go there, it is, it is, it is known to be a liberal arts college that has a huge uh, music department. And with such great history, um, I find it, interesting that the students are surrounded by something like this going on. Now, what I've been told is that Oberlin College exists in what you might call a bubble. And the, the town itself, it's almost like it, it, unless, you ha unless you have business on campus, you're, it's kind of like you don't go to the campus. You kind of like Oberlin, the city, surrounds the campus, and it, it, they're, they're kind of two separate worlds. So it looks mm -hmm. to me like the world has invaded this bubble. That's kind of the way I'm looking at this. The world has okay. invaded this bubble. You know, uh, Kimberly, you mentioned earlier that uh, there were five blacks from Oberlin who were involved with uh, John Brown and his raid on Harper's Ferry. Yes. Do you know if there's any uh, monuments in the city to those individuals or on the campus? No, there are not. Unfortunately, um, you know, that's something that probably should should happen. Um, there is a monument, well, if you want to say monument, John Mercer Langston's home, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is a National Historic Site. Okay. Um, and I guess you would look at that as a, um, uh, a monument because John Mercer was extremely uh, involved with John Brown and was actually uh, he and his brother Charles, uh, my cousins, were the recruiters for the Harper's Ferry uh, Army, Raid Army. And I guess you would say that was uh, that would be a, uh, a great testament is the fact that his home is a National Historic Site. But there's really no monument in um, Oberlin to the people that were there. Um, the Harper's Ferry incident, it's, all, it's at Harper's Ferry. Um, would that stop people that because they saw a monument? Do you think so, Preston? I, I asked that question. Well, I just thought that the um, it should be designated as as a site or some sort of monument. It is it's rather historical. Um, I'd like to get oh, yeah. back a little bit in depth and reference uh, the events that your family was involved in. Uh, uh -huh. The vigilance committee. Yes. I think that you mentioned the vigilance committee, and that was like a cross between all the Black Panthers and the NAACP, you might say? Oh, boy. Well, there, there's a, <laughs> there's a description. Bit, can you give us a little bit more detail on your family's involvement in that vigilance committee? Well, it gets, back to, it gets back to uh, the vigilance committee. Um, it was called the Oberlin Anti-Slavery Society, I guess, technically. Um, okay. An anti-slavery society was there were many across the country. Um, in most of the major cities, there were anti-slavery societies, and that was a group, uh, generally speaking, of abolitionists who didn't believe in slavery. And not necessarily were they actively involved in the Underground Railroad, but 
probably, in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Anti-slavery societies were just that. You had people that did not believe in slavery, and they belonged and therefore would perhaps espout um, anti-slavery speeches, maybe go to church. Not necessarily were they involved in the Underground Railroad, but as I said, nine times out of ten they were involved in some way, shape, form, or fashion. In Oberlin, it was a very active community. Um, The Langstons in particular, um, Charles Langston was a member of the Oberlin Wellington uh, Rescue, and he actually was um, thrown in jail. He was arrested and thrown in jail, tried, and served time over the uh, rescue of John Price which is the incident that is referred to when you call the Oberlin when you call the Oberlin Wellington uh rescue. Um, the anti slavery society, the Oberlin Anti Slavery Society was the group of men, there's a very famous portrait, was the group of men that were actually uh the rescuers and there's a very uh you can pretty much go out to any um web to any web page and Google Oberlin Wellington Rescue, and you'll see a picture of uh, the Oberlin Wellington Rescuers, and that's the Oberlin Anti-Slavery Society. Um, My cousin, uh, Charles Langston, actually is in the middle of the picture in the front. They um, were a very active group. Uh, John Brown was uh, considered, I think, uh, kind of a, a member of the group. He did not live there, but uh, he he frequented that part of the country. Uh, the Missouri Raid was helped by the Oberlin uh, Anti-Slavery Society. Um, anti-Slavery societies, like I said, existed pretty much across the country, but it depended on which one you were talking about, how active they were actively involved. Detroit had an anti-slavery society. It was the Detroit Vigilant Committee, and uh, that was a very active uh, organization, very active here in Detroit. Can you give our listeners a little bit more informa- uh, information about the Price incident, that Price rescue? What more can you tell us sure. about that? Well, John Price was a young man who had escaped from his uh, Kentucky slave owner uh, in the mid-1850s. He had been uh, living and working in Oberlin for about two years. And in the fall of 1858, his uh, slave catchers caught up with him. Um, taken back to Kentucky. And uh, with the help of the uh, Anti-Slavery Society, on September uh, 13th, well, with the help of uh, some of the few locals, again, remember, Oberlin, that area kind of operated in a bubble. So you had... um, those that believed in uh, the freedom of all, and then you had those that didn't necessarily believe that. So with the help of a few locals, if you want to say, that weren't necessarily believers, uh, the slave catchers uh, actually lured or got Price out of Oberlin and, uh, I don't know, told him he was going to get some work or what have you. Anyway, uh armed with some weapons and a warrant, uh, they actually arrested him and went to uh, Wellington, Ohio, to the jail. He was put in jail overnight. They were going to catch a train. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what happened. That's kind of where it started. Um, It's funny. that That particular incident is very famous primarily because it happened after the 1850 uh, Fugitive Slave Law, which said that anyone anyone that helped uh, property, which would have been an African-American, uh, someone that had been enslaved, that had escaped, anyone that ha- helped property to escape were just as guilty as those escaping. That happened because the Fugitive Slave Law, 1850, so even though there were similar things that had happened prior to uh, 1850, similar events, I can think of the Blackburn riot here in Detroit that, that was similar where slave catchers caught up with uh, 
freedom seekers who had emancipated themselves and uh, produced a warrant for their arrest, had them in jail. That Anything prior to 1850 was a totally different flavor, if you want to say. After 1850, anyone that helped was just as guilty. So that's why this was such a huge uh, incident happening in 1858. And you got an entire town involved in the rescue. Um, this It was a really, really big incident. And Oberlin being such a center of traffic for the anti-slavery movement, um, it, was a, it, it became a huge event. So the citizens from Oberlin went over to Wellington and... Uh, yes. And I guess they stormed the jail? They stormed the jail. Um, it was um, such a, uh, and, you know, we're talking about 30-some-odd people. You know, we're not talking, that belong to the anti-slavery society that actually were involved. And this mm-hmm. was not a, you know, come over, knock on the door and say, can we have him back? No, this was uh no, we're taking him back. So it became um Quite a quite a huge deal, and as I said, one of the people that was there was uh, uh, two people that actually were tried, and one was Charles Langston, and my cousin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Langston was actually uh, tried, and he um, gave a famous uh, uh, what I guess you would say speech on uh, to the court on uh, universal human rights that um, people repeat today, especially in, um, I guess you would say, journalism class. Um, he, uh, he, he, is the gran- he was the grandfather or is the grandfather of my cousin Langston Hughes, and I do believe that that's where Langston got his backbone, <laughs> definitely from his grandfather. <laughs> um you know, it's it, it's funny. I, like I say, as I go over these incidences and I think of what's going on, can you imagine this? Can you imagine in in a place like this that has people with this kind of history that you would have clan, someone walking around in a clan robe? I mean, that's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You know, and and it's it's uh it, it's such a disrespect for the past. Mm-hmm. Well, like you said, there's a lot uh, going on around the country right now, but there in Oberlin, do you think that is someone on campus, uh, someone from the Oberlin community, or someone from outside the Oberlin community? I understand the FBI might be involved now. Have they revealed any new information? Yeah, you know, it is. The FBI has been brought in, and from what I understand, because I've done a little bit of investigation, uh, I do believe that they have decided it's two students. And, you know, Preston, you're right. Things are going on like this across the country. And I don't, I hate to, you know, I, I, I hate to, to guess as to why, but we are in a point in time in, in this country where we're seeking, I guess you would say, our truth again. Um, there has been a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, upheaval, we'll, we'll just say, um, mm-hmm. since uh, our president was uh, elected. Um, this country, it's it, you know we're we're 150 years ahead of the ahead of the Civil War at this point, and we still are dealing with the uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment and the understanding thereof. Um, we have a lot of young people, and this gets back to what I do every day, all day, and that is I try to share with our young people in particular uh, our history because mm-hmm. I think that it is extremely important that our children, and when I say our children, I'm talking about young people, college age, uh, high school, where they're just getting their, if you want to say their civics lessons, and learning about the way government works, learning about other people and the diverse nation that we live in. If you, sh- I, sh- I try to make sure that I share our history with them because sometimes um, 
you want to say, they get uh, diverted into um, think. Their thinking gets diverted. Uh, they're fed from maybe a, a, a stream that isn't so clean, and they don't realize what their history is to learn how to uh, treat others the way our um, they ha they they ha they do not know our history to know how they should be treating others because our history uh if known by our kids would allow them to mm, would allow them to uh uh think l let's just say allow them to think through um why or why not uh, let's just say a Ku Klux Klan robe would mean such a would mean such a terrible thing to many people. Just the sign of that, what that means. Uh, our kids have no idea of what history is about. They don't know what that means, not only to the African American population, the Jewish population. What that what that symbol is. Um, I think uh, I heard that. It's possible that they're, they have uh, narrowed it down to maybe two students on campus who thought it was funny. There's nothing funny about that sign. There's nothing funny about writing words on a wall. There's nothing funny about uh, writing above a bathroom, uh, whites only. I mean, that's just, but it gets, you know, you've got kids that are so far away from the civil rights movement and so far away their, from their history and not fed by anyone, not given that history back, that sometimes I think we can't blame our children, we have to blame ourselves. Um, you know, uh, speaking of that history, um, our youngsters should well know that Oberlin College was integrated in 1835 and also graduated, I believe, the first black female with a degree. Now, prior to That's that, correct. they had graduated females, uh, but without a degree. But in, after 1835, it was a black female uh, that first graduated with a degree. And I'm wondering, you know, with the events going around other colleges, it's a little surprised that Oberlin, if there is a conspiracy, and I don't want to think that there is, but if there, if there is, it's a little wonder that Oberlin would be singled out given its rich history in terms of its attitude towards yes, blacks, yes. in terms of educating them, graduating them from college. Um, women, I believe it was one of the first colleges in the nation to admit women uh, to, their uni to their college. So it's a little wonder that they would be picked out. And I'm wondering how attached to that history are those people uh, that are performing these acts. Um, and I think you're right well, that's on. What I that's what I Kimberly. say. These, you know, we do we do our children an injustice. Um, history has not, has become a subject that is only uh, taught kind of as a sidebar. It's not a subject that is taught in depth. We do not teach local history to give children a sense of place. We are we have a tendency now to teach let's just call it national history and we don't dwell on the bad parts. We kind of brush over the bad parts. Um mm -hmm. local history which gives which gives us a sense of place um is not is not really del uh we don't really delve into that in school. We kind of fluff that over. If you want your local history, you're going to have to take a course in a, in a grad school. And, um, you know, grad school, you've lost kids. And a lot of kids don't go to grad school. So you've lost children. Um, you've lost the young people. So they have no sense of really the place that they're in. And that would get back to you have children running around in clan robes and writing things up on a wall, and they have no sense that they're in a place that uh, it's it's been called. Oberlin was the town that started the Civil War. That's how big of a deal it was. 
Oh, yeah. So you're going, you're going to a school. You're going to a, a school that literally the school itself, the college, is on the National Historic Landmark list. And you've got, um, like I said, John Mercer Langston's home on campus that is literally a National Historic Landmark. Mm-hmm. This is where you go. You are at a place where uh, the Underground Railroad, if you want to say, ran through Oberlin. <laughs> it was a stop. Not only was it a stop, it was a big stop. Um, you had, uh, it was the first place that graduated, I think it was the first coeducational institution. It's the oldest coeducational institution in, in the country. Um, this is This is history that, Maybe not someone outside of Oberlin would know, but if you're going to Oberlin College, you should know this. This isn't something that you should have to read in a book. This is something that you should know when you're going to the college. Therefore, you would know that anything that you would do, writing up on a wall, wearing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, um, it's, that's, that's, you have, that's, it's a sanctified place. You don't do that. Um, and, and, uh, the people that were through that went through that place, you know, these are American heroes, and you are disrespecting the honor that they left there. Um, you know, I, I find. You know, a pro- I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, Kimberly, uh, you reminded me of uh, when you talked about the loss and our children getting behind and these black uh, icons, et cetera. What do you think of the closing of the 129 predominantly black schools in Chicago, Illinois? Oh, I saw that. Yes. A lot of those schools are named in honor of some of those black icons from the past and the uh, abolitionists back in the day. And that's kind of feeding into this, what you were mentioning earlier about this loss, this loss of history. Etc. Right. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Have you had any thoughts on that? What's going on there in Chicago? You know, I saw that uh, the other day. The actual, I thought I saw a news article on that, and I, I, I have to compare it to Detroit. This gets back to not knowing our history. Um, it is, I guess you would say, it's 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 a practice, especially in the African American community. When we have schools, uh, we when we have the opportunity to name the schools, we'll name them in honor of our heroes and our sheroes. And um, it gives it gives the children, you know, a backbone, if you want to say, to know that they're going somewhere that's named after someone they should be very proud of. Unfortunately, we are going through a time in this country where uh, our schools and our population is shifting. A lot of the schools, uh, especially in the urban areas, are closing because of um, a population shift to the suburbs or to another part of the town. And in Chicago, Chicago is very similar to Detroit. We have a lot of shifting going on. And we're in, here in Detroit, where I am, we're losing a lot of the schools. Uh, in the African-American community, a lot of those schools are named after our heroes and our sheroes of, of African-American descent. Now... I read that the Chicago schools, that someone has accused them of closing them and closing the schools that are actually, uh, quote-unquote, named after African-Americans or our our heritage. Basically, they're closing schools that are tied to our heritage. And, you know, I I hear that, but the way I would challenge that statement, not that I'm saying maybe it's partially true. I'll say that it's partially true. But the uh-huh. other part gets back to what I said a little earlier. No, if you don't know the history of a place, if you haven't been taught the history to know that a man by the name of, let's just say, Elijah McCoy here in Detroit, the real McCoy, um, or you don't know a man by the name of Benjamin Banneker, or you don't know the person by the name of um, Granville Woods, if you don't know who these people are, it doesn't matter. It doesn't occur to you that by closing a school named after Elijah McCoy or closing a school named after Granville Woods, 
is going to make an impression on a whole a whole race of people. You don't know that. All you all you know is this is a school that doesn't have a population to sustain it, and you're going to close it. Now, I, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that and reiterate. In some cases, I believe that it's quite possible that we know that they're Afri- that these schools may have been tied to African American heroes, sheroes. But then it gets back to what I was saying before. We aren't teaching our history. We are not teaching our giving those that are going to be in some decision-making capacity or already are. They have no idea, none, who these people are because we haven't given it to them. So therefore, can we blame that? Can we blame them when they close a school down that is tied to a piece of history that may be right around the corner or might be across the across the country? Can we blame them for all of that? No, because we have to take the blame too. I think there's you know, a lot of blame uh, to, go, to go around. You know, Kimberly, when you talk about teaching this history, uh, I like to commend you because that history, I believe, starts with genealogy, and you've done such a magnificent job in your own uh, historical journey and genealogy. And how did your genealogy, your study of your family history, influence your love of history? Um, And should genealogy be part of the curriculum of some of our schools, particularly our African-American schools? Absolutely, and I'm going to I'm going to repeat what I say often when I speak. There is nothing more empowering to you, or to me, or to anyone, than to know who you are. Amen. Because knowing who you are a lot gives you a platform to move forward. Now, I'm not talking about. Uh, you know, claiming all the heroes in your in your family tree. I'm talking about Uncle Joe that maybe got thrown in jail, or mm-hmm. you know, Auntie Sue that uh, we haven't heard from her in a, in a long time. But the fact of the matter is, is knowing who you are. That's the good, a starting the bad, point. And the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's a yeah. starting point. It is. Um, it has been. Um, Studies have been done that most African Americans, unfortunately, generally speaking, cannot go back further than a generation or two, maybe a great-grandmother, great-grandfather. And that comes from being enslaved and our families being separated. So many, many of us cannot go further than that. And that's that's unfortunate. I personally can go back quite a long way, a very, very long way. And I consider myself very fortunate that I can do that. But even those that can't, maybe you can go back three generations, the fact that you can take that back and you can hold on to that and say, well, I know what my great-grandmother's name was, her name was, or I know what my great-grandfather's name was, his name was, and my uncle's name was, and my great-uncle's name was, that gives you so much power to know that there was somebody before you that you have to look up to, hopefully, that you have mm-hmm. to look up to and aspire, perhaps, to be like. Um, you know, some I, I think sometimes that our, our, our African-American children, uh, unfortunately, get into a lot of trouble and do things primarily because no one has given them that basis to start from. They don't know where to start. They think they have been told in school, again, it gets back to learning your history. They've been told that African Americans, I heard off the cuff, I don't even, I can't remember quite where I was, and I was. I overheard a conversation. I was not in it, I overheard it. And I heard uh, a young man say that the African Americans didn't have a history until they came to this country. And they were given, we were given our history when we came here. And I thought, oh, my God, that that statement was just so ugly. It was ugly. And I thought to myself, but the cradle of civilization was actually on the African continent. Okay, so let's think about this. We don't have a history till we get here. Now, 
that person, I think, was not speaking. Uh, that was not a nice conversation. He was he that it was meant just the way I took it. It was disrespectful. But you know what? There are people, there are folks that literally that statement being made to they would take that for faith. They believe that that we really don't have a history, and that gets back to the history is not taught in schools. Our history isn't taught in schools. Um, the kids here don't hear their history, and then. They don't learn who they are, their genealogy, their family tree. Um, it's it, it's a vicious circle, which allows which allows children, young people on a campus historically significant, a place historically significant as Oberlin, to disrespect to disrespect the memory of those that had been there and gone because they don't know. That it's a memory they shouldn't even be, they shouldn't touch. They don't know that. And that gets back to where we are not sharing enough with them. Yeah, and it gets back to that idea, too. Uh, something you said that reminded me that back mm-hmm. during the Black Power movement, um, there was a big movement amongst people of color to change their names, and that is to separate themselves from the slave master's name. Um, and it didn't really catch on to a great degree, um, but there was that period of what we might call enlightenment. Um, right. And um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, getting back to um, this naming our kids, um, you know, we don't even pass down that tradition as we once did. Um you know, a kid might be called a young daughter. Emma May would have been after a great grandmother, and that would leave you the opportunity then to tell Grandma Emma's story. Or naming well, our kids after countries in Africa, uh, et cetera. Um, well, you know, there is a. You know, you asked me earlier about a, some sort of a marker in Oberlin. You know, there is a marker on the underground. There isn't a marker about the um, Oberlin Wellington rescue, but there is okay. a marker that so it's a small marker that is in um, Oberlin that that marks the Underground Railroad. Um, I think that in itself is great, but you know, I've always wanted to see more of a, how can I put this, a tie to Oberlin, unless you know that, unless you, you actually study the Oberlin history, which I would hope that uh, anyone that went to Oberlin uh, College or was in, around Oberlin would know that, oh, how, how deeply tied Oberlin is to not only Harper's Ferry, but you also have Chatham, which is in Canada, which is the scene of the Chatham Convention where, where uh, the um, Brown... Army met prior to uh, Harper's Ferry. They met in Chatham, Ontario, Detroit, Michigan. Oberlin was where every, most, a lot of them came from, and then, of course, Harper's Ferry. And I've thought that perhaps um, to tie all of that history together, this gets back to telling our history, that there should be companion monuments in every place, if you can understand what I'm saying. The story, it's like a continual story. It's like a circle that should be told. And that gets back to telling the story to the children. We always we, we stop telling our story in one spot, but this particular story that surrounds Oberlin needs to be, it, 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 it's like, it's a, it's a big story. It's not a little story. It's a big story. Um, just like our family histories are big stories. They're not little stories. Um our stories start in one place, and they continue. There were those that were brought over from a continent. They started in a country. They came over and were dropped off at some spot, and then they were dispersed. That's a continuing continuation of one story. Um, Oberlin is is a piece, a small piece of a bigger story. Um, our family histories are a small piece of a bigger story. Um, the civil rights movement, which grew out of the under the modern civil rights movement, which grew out of the Underground Railroad, um, is the continuation 
of the bigger story. Mm-hmm. We we have a tendency to keep um, our histories like they're detached. Each everybody's detached from everyone else, but we're all tied together. We have it's one big story with different chapters, different places. Um, the Oberlin story. That's I get back to the same thing. The Oberlin story is told. There's historic markers around town. You have a you have a sculpt, uh, sculpture that's in town, the Underground Railroad. But there's so much more to that. Um, what else happened? Harper's Ferry, uh, the Civil War. As I said, Civil War was started in Oberlin. We have a tendency not to tell our stories. Our stories, our stories, our stories are who we are and explains why we're moving. It, it explains. It explains what happened. I tell people uh, when I speak, um, with this being the year of the Emancipation Proclamation's 150th commemoration, I talk about the fact that that was a wonderful document and we should celebrate it. But, of course, we were not um, freed until the 13th Amendment was, was signed. That was in 1865, after the war. And, you know, everybody thinks, oh, good, that's where we, I said, but you know what, that's not, that might be an important thing that happened in our history. But it's not the most important, because actually the 13th Amendment freed us, but we didn't have a country. We had to be given our country, because we were a free people without a country until the 14th Amendment was signed, which gave us our citizenship. And And people look at me. I'm sorry. In your presentations, um, do you um, let individuals know about the other liberal active, activist college in Ohio, Wilberforce? Does that play in? You know, I, my presentations center around freedom because that's the first thing I ask. I usually ask the question, and that is, what is freedom? What does that mean to you? Um, there were many liberal liberal colleges, Wilberforce, yes, being one of them, uh, Oberlin, of course, being another. I do not talk about Wilberforce primarily because I'm tied to Oberlin. <laughs> but mm-hmm. that particular uh, college, yes, has a purpose and a reason for, you know, uh, we could get into Fisk. There are many colleges um, historically significant to the African-American experience, so... Let's uh, let's stay on Ohio for a minute, and uh, uh-huh. what can you tell our listeners about William Wilberforce? Let's. I'm sorry. What can you tell our our listeners about William Wilberforce, whom uh, had that college uh, I, honor? I am not going. I am not going to say that I am a, a Wilberforce uh, fanatic because I am not. So I can't tell you very much about uh, William Wilberforce. You'll have to leave that to another expert. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll just mention that uh, Wilberforce ended the slave trade, um, and that story is highlighted in a movie called Amazing Grace. um, Right. That That I know about. That I I do know. But to get into uh, the establishment of Wilberforce College, that's not something that I could probably speak intelligently on, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna step into that. Well, he was an Englishman, and right. again, he was involved in the um, the ending of the slave trade in England. Right. And right. Uh, people there in Ohio got inspired by that. It was founded by a group of black ministers, and right. uh, named it in his honor, William Wilberforce. Right. And uh, I don't know, do you know if it was one of the first uh, HBCUs in Ohio? Yeah, Wilberforce. It probably was. I mean, I can't, like I said, Wilberforce, I'm not that familiar with Wilberforce, of course, because that's not what my background is. But um, I would go so far as to say it was probably one of the first established uh, HBCUs in the country. Uh, along with um, Fisk University, and um, there's and several Nashville. others that are in that in Nashville. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, getting back to those names, um, you have a strong connection to the Hughes family, and that Langston, that name Langston, kept coming down 
through the generations. Do you suspect if your family had changed their name back in the day, right after slavery, that you would have ever found out your connection to Langston Hughes' family? Well, you know, they didn't change their name. I, I, let me explain how that name came to be. Um, the Langston men, Charles, Gideon, John, and actually they had a sister named Maria, uh, were actually, it, had it been this day and time, they would have been quarrels. And if you recall, I'll, I'll refresh your listeners' um, uh, memory. My ancestor, uh, my great-great-great-grandmother, her name was Carolyn Quarles. It became Carolyn Quarles Watkins uh, after she married um, when she arrived here in uh, the Detroit-Windsor uh, area. But uh, her grandfather, she was the daughter of a gentleman by the name of Robert Pryor Quarles. He was, quote-unquote, the son of the house. His father was Dr. Robert Quarles, a plantation owner and uh, the landed gentry from Virginia. She was born, the actually owned by her grandfather, she was born in his house at Sixth and Pine in downtown St. Louis. Robert Quarles ended up in St. Louis uh, because he had been a Revolutionary War uh, soldier and was paid by land grant to, um, instead of, uh, because of, of course, the country, early country didn't have uh, cash, so the... Uh, uh, Revolutionary War veterans were actually paid by land, and he was given a piece of land actually that would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of Columbus, Ohio, and on somewhere around the Ohio State campus. But he uh, left Virginia and struck out across country and decided not to take that piece of land. Why? Because he was a slave owner, and that part of Ohio was uh, free. So he ended up on the banks of the uh, Mississippi River in St. Louis, and that was where my ancestor was. What my great 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 grandmother was born. She, um, like I said, carried the Quarles name. Now, Dr. Robert Quarles, uh, Virginia landowner, Revolutionary War soldier, had a brother, and his brother's name was Ralph. Ralph never left uh, Virginia. Actually, he uh, stayed in Virginia after the war, Revolutionary War and uh, stayed on his land that he had in Virginia. He took himself, uh, of course, it's kind of hard to explain now, but he mm -hmm. lived with a woman. Her name was Mary, her, her, excuse me, her, her name was uh, Mary Langston, common-law wife, and she was of mixed heritage, African-descended, and Native American. Between them, they had four children, Charles, John, Gideon, and Maria. And because you could not marry a white man, could not marry a black woman, or vice versa, uh, they never could take his name. The Quarles' right. name was never passed to the Langston kids. And when now, he died, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Is this the family that wound up in Ohio? And, that is uh, correct. It, and so what attracted, attracted individuals to Ohio in terms of the abolitionist movement getting started, um, being part of the Northwest Territory? Um, well, the Mercer, kids, the Mercer kids ended up there because they were fearful for their life. Uh, the family uh, actually, when uh, Ralph Quarles died, he left the kids, and I say that, Charles and John Mercer and Maria and Gideon, he left them. They were actually left his uh, his uh, land and his uh, plantation. But because of the fact that they were black, they were actually taken out of Virginia and sent to Ohio with a family member because it was safe. So that's how they ended up in Ohio. That was the way the, the uh, Langstons that, like I say, were actually quarrels, had been born quarrels but could not take their dad's name, uh, ended up in Ohio. That is the way okay, the family why, ended up. Why Ohio, Ohio, for example, and not New York? Why was Ohio so safe? Anti-slavery sympathizers. Um, Ohio was free. Um, a lot of land. Uh, there was a lot of um, 
uh, like I said, anti that that was a western border at the time. You know, because if you if you think about that time frame, you're talking about eighteen eighteen late eighteen forties, early eighteen fifties. That was the western border. So the further you move west, you know, you didn't you were moving into uh, open territory. So there was that was actually a free territory. So it was safer for them to go west rather than to go east or well not east, but it would have been northeast. So that would have been a safer way to go. Plus there was already. Uh, members of um I guess you would say the uh, the inner circle that had moved that that far. That was a safe place to go. Are you uh familiar with the um Northwest Territory Act of seventeen ninety two? Uh somewhat. What's your what's your what's your question? Well that um area being safe, you said it was uh the western border and I'm wondering how that act played into Ohio becoming so safe. Did that act of 1792 play into that? I mean, yes, I can it look would it because it, well, extended the, it, it extended the United States territory into you know the north. That, see, that was a, that was our our west. Consider okay. uh, as time went on, that was way west. You had the Louisiana Purchase and the Northwest Territory. And as you started moving west, there was it was uh, a decided which was going to become a slave, uh, slave quote unquote slave territory, and which would have been free. Um, that is why, if you remember, the Quarles family did not settle in quote unquote Ohio because it was free. They kept moving, and they ended up in Missouri. My my branch of that family ended up in Missouri because it was slave territory. Um, the uh, our 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 country has grown very in in interesting ways. <laughs> um, yes, it, has. It, it has, and there's been many laws. Again, it gets back to teaching the children this to understand the movement of a people. But um, that probably played a, a good role in, a role into it earlier. Um, then again, you had again the Louisiana Purchase. Which actually included Missouri, the upper, the upper uh, South, um, the lower South. So you know, you're, you're start as you start moving further, and uh, time started ticking. Uh, they decided which part of the territory was going to be free, and which which part was going to be uh, enslaved. That's where um, you had the Kansas massacre, because Kansas came in, and there was a there was a um, a lot of uh, pro-slavery people in Kansas who fought with the anti-slavery, those anti-slavery folks that was an open state over whether it was going to be free or whether there was going to be enslavement. I mean, our country has history of fighting over this, and we don't even talk about it. As a matter of fact, we prefer not to. (laughs) Exactly. How would you like to, uh, getting back to what's going on there in Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio, um, how would you like to see this, uh, this these incidents, these racist incidents, uh, resolved? And, well, uh, first off, it's obvious that there needs to be some education. And you know, it's funny that you say that. I have reached, I am, have reached out to several people that I've met at Oberlin, and I would love to go down. Love may be a strong word. Um, I would like to go down to Oberlin and just find out exactly what's going on. From what I from from the news accounts that I've read, and some of the um, uh, the uh, TV coverage, they're doing their the school closed down for a day. They shut the school down for a day um, to okay. have a, a a campus um, a rally to discuss what was going on. But I think that this shows that we have a long way to go to talk about who we are, our diverse country, and what it means when we start talking about our history. And I really I, I have reached out to uh, several people that I know that uh, actually work in and around Oberlin and are involved with Oberlin College. And I really would like maybe uh, moving on into the uh, near future to um, 
start some sort of a conversation with um, the college and perhaps bridge that out into a larger conversation that we can have. I, I often uh, remember uh, our president when he actually uh, took, well, was running the first time, and his statement has was then, and he's repeated it several times, that we have to have this national conversation on race. We need to converse on race because it's something we just don't, we haven't talked about, and we've never talked out. you got to talk out your problems, and that is a problem that has never been talked out. Well, you know, perhaps Oberlin and what's going on there would be a great starting point because of its historical significance to the past, because of its tie to uh, the children of the future. Perhaps that's a place to start this conversation. So I would be open to um, maybe... Um, developing some sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of a forum that could be taken across country to discuss. You know, because for something like that to happen at such a place like that, um, it gives you an opportunity. You need to use some of the bad things as an opportunity to teach. That's my that's my theory. Use the bad to teach. You know, our producer, Leslie Gist, has some history there in Ohio uh, known as the Gist Settlements, as G-I-S-T. And there's difficulty going on around that and that Leslie may have to go down because there are racists who are stealing historical markers and also dumping garbage on the settlements there. Right. So she may be in contact with you to hook up with you there in Ohio um, to spread the message. Yeah, all places. Ohio used to be a, uh, one of those places where you went and you just – you know, was, Ohio has always been known for its freedom, but right now there's a lot of conservative policies that are changing something that his, this is, um, Ohio has, is historically noted, it's almost like Illinois, it's historically noted as being a place of freedom. And for this kind of thing to be happening in the state of Ohio, I just find it appalling. I really do. Um, it's, uh, But it gets back to, I believe people that are involved, the young people, if it is the two young people, or if it's somebody else that are involved, I don't really think that they know their history, or if they do, they have been, have not been taught it thoroughly to know how um, totally disgusting any any um, activity like this really is. As a bigger as a bigger whole, you know, um, as they say, you know, kids are taught to be racist. You're not born that way. You are exactly. taught. Learned behavior, that's for sure. So, so learned behavior. Exactly, you are taught. So this behavior that you're exhibiting is being taught to you. You are not getting that from. You're not learning that from a book or learning your history that people. You know, this is something that is being given to you, basically. So I I really think that this is an opportunity for us to teach. I don't know um, what else is going on at Oberlin, you know, after this incident, what's going on uh, future. I actually am uh, going to, am uh, starting some work with the University of Michigan here um, on this topic. It wasn't prompted by the Oberlin incident, but uh, as we sit here and speak, uh, I think that it's an opportunity perhaps to uh, do to start looking at doing maybe doing some sessions on some conversations on race around the country. Um, when you have something like this happen and happen at, at such a, a place, um, it do gives you, you an dates? opportunity, like I say, to teach. Do you have any dates coming up on any of your activities there in the Detroit no, area? We're just, we're just starting to talk with the University of Michigan. Um, they are in the middle of a theme semester called Understanding Race. And I thought that that was great, but in order to understand it, you need to know the history of it. And uh, so we're, gonna, we're talking about putting some programming together for the uh, fall. Um, I personally am working on a heritage camp. You had asked about that earlier. Um, one of the things that I have impressed upon the state of Michigan is 
an opportunity. We have uh, a state park here in Detroit, Urban State Park. It's the only one in the, in the uh, state system. And I have um, impressed upon the powers that be that uh, even though it's nice to know what a frog looks like and uh, what trees are growing, there are other things that happen around the state and in a lot of the places that they call state parks, and that is our history that we need to learn about. So I have um, been given permission to work on a heritage camp that is going to include a lot of what we talked about today. Uh, we're going to teach genealogy, or we're going to teach a sense of place, where are you? And um, it's geared toward uh, junior high schoolers through uh, high school. So uh, that is coming for sp for the um, spring and summer months for hopefully locally uh, Detroit uh, school school students and uh, surrounding suburbs. And how would our listeners get in touch with you so that they might keep up uh, and get notified of when these events are going to uh, happen? Sure. Would you mind giving out your contact information for us again? I would. I have no problem with that. My uh, email address is actually Detroit River Project at gmail dot com. Okay, Detroit I River Project com. Detroit Go ahead. River Project at gmail dot com. I am the director and executive director and president of uh, Michigan nonprofit called the Detroit River Project. Okay, great. I, we have a Facebook page. Uh, we post on the Facebook page, and our website is currently being reworked. But uh, I welcome anyone to email me if they want to reach out and uh, talk about some things that are going on here in Detroit. Uh, we've got a lot of projects that are kind of at the uh, beginning stage. We're actually working on a mural project uh, for the city of Detroit, as a matter of fact, to tell our history, history on every corner. Okay, great. Um, we're out of time here, uh, Kimberly, sadly so. And as always, I appreciate uh, your input and your knowledge about uh, these current events that's going on there in Ohio at Oberlin College. Uh, for those just tuning in, we've been talking to uh, Kimberly Simmons, Detroit, Michigan, around certain racist events that are going on at Oberlin College in Oberlin uh, Ohio. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host, and our producer has been Lillian or Leslie Gist, uh, the Gist of Freedom, who also has a web page, and she additionally is on Facebook. If you want to contact her, again, my name is Preston Washington. I've been your host. Uh, thanks again, Kimberly, and uh, surely we'll hook up again somewhere in the future. I'm sure we were. We will. Thanks a lot, Preston. I hope you have a great Easter. Thank you, and you too. Good night, Thank everyone. You.